Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 31st, 2021. This year, ID numbers for Friday, October 29th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Bay Book Study, 18,000. That's 18000. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,002. That's 18002. This morning, a vision for you presents the Autumn Asket Basket. We come to the program as a result of the constant pain, frustration, suffering, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, as the big book reminds us, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We begin to realize that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our own effort, our philosophies, our goals, our resolutions, or good intentions, very, very good intentions, won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. We cannot solve the problem by ourselves. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. Our situation truly seems hopeless. The secret of the 12 steps is that in spite of all the odds, it is possible to be able to effectuate such dramatic change, a transformation in personality, a transformation in character, and a transformation in our values. We are restored to sanity. A new vision comes into view. The big book was written as a set of directions for applying the 12 steps. It's not a book of theory or philosophy. It offers a clear step-by-step approach for our recovery. It presents a clear, practical solution to the problem, and it shows us how to implement that solution in our own lives through the 12-step program of action it describes. The exciting thing about the 12 steps is that they truly teach us how to live. Joining us today to describe his personal story of transformation and offer an opportunity for questions related to the program recovery is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and enthusiastically carrying the message of recovery, and it's with great delight, and always tremendous appreciation to welcome Harlan G. to the line. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Thank you very much for that beautiful introduction. I hope I can live up to half of it. Thank you so I'm much. I'm not worried. I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm 
really, really glad to be here. I also hope that on this October 31st, it is as astoundingly gorgeous wherever you are as it is here in Arizona this morning. It is just astounding here. Um, I am Harlan G. I am in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am a compulsive overeater. I have a physical allergy that compels me to eat once certain allergic foods or ingredients of foods are introduced into my body, and I have a twist of the mind that compels me to eat in search of relief from the intenable toxicity, the pain of the buildup of my emotions. And what I'm looking for, as Dr. Silkworth so beautifully describes, is what he calls the effect. What is that effect? It is a sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. I'm not going to go into a lengthy uh, story of my life. Uh, um, it's, it's out there on many special editions if you care to hear it. What I'm going to do is just make this as quick as I can so we can open up the lines for questions and answers. I'm just going to assure you, yes, I'm a real compulsive overeater. And from the time I was a kid, from the time I was three, four years old, my weight, my eating was topic one of the conversation that went on whenever my parents were with a doctor or with other friends of theirs. My food, my food consumption, excuse me, my weight, uh, how fat I was getting was topic one. And I could see uh, even pre-kindergarten that my weight was the one thing that brought my warring battling parents together. They screamed at each other. They yelled at each other constantly throughout my life. But the one time that they would unite and they would sort of commiserate with one another is, what are we going to do about his weight? By the time I was five, six years old, a couple of things happened to me. Uh, I started to get much fatter than my friends. And I started trying to diet. People would say things to me like, oh, come on, you can discipline yourself. You can use willpower. You've got some willpower, young man. You just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So I saw no no point to life because I just could not be the person that they wanted me to be. And they'd say things to me like, don't eat so much. You'll feel better. They were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel jealousy better. I feel my own inadequacies better. I feel my confusion better, my insecurity better. I compare myself to other people better, and I always come out on the short end. You know what they say, the quickest road to unhappiness is through the shortcut of comparison. And the less I ate, the worse I felt. And I found out that losing weight, because I did sometimes successfully diet, was not a treatment for this disease. Losing weight and being abstinent does not treat my disease. All it is is a prerequisite. I have to be abstinent, but being abstinent alone will not treat this disease. I must have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And unless I have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, nothing is going to change in my life except I'm going to get thinner. Yes, but I can't keep that up on my own. It's like asking myself, how long can I hold my breath <clears throat> excuse me, underwater? 
not long is the answer. And uh, by the time I was nine, I was on very heavy-duty amphetamines. The doctor put me on diet pills. I remember I was nine years old. My mother started screaming at the doctor in Yiddish. The doctor started screaming at my mother in Yiddish. And the next thing you know, I'm on these amphetamines, these diet pills. And it kills your appetite, but it also makes you crazy. It also makes you half nuts. And I can still feel the pounding in my head from the amphetamines and when you crash down from them I ate Illinois and most of Wisconsin I was born and raised in Chicago I live in Scottsdale Arizona now but part of my story is I was born and raised in Chicago Illinois um, I'm actually going back there next week for a wedding but anyway uh, getting back to this to make it as quick as I can in a, in a few words, in a few sentences, by the time I was about 10 or 11, I was physically emasculated by this disease. By the time I was about 10 or 11, I was emotionally emasculated by this disease. I became, as a teenager, an object of ridicule. I was 335 pounds by the time I was a senior in high school, and I became an object of ridicule. People would make fun of me in public. People would come up and slap my stomach, and they'd slap my rear end and ask me when the baby elephant was due. Many, many times as a later, later on as an adult, uh, by the time I was a sophomore in college, I was over 500 pounds. By the time I graduated college, I was 600 pounds. I had towels shoved between layers of flab on my body to keep the skin from rubbing together. Food became my lover. Food became my solace. Food became my comfort. When I was scared, when I was lonely, when I was anything, food was there to comfort me. And the very thing that comforted me was the producer of all of the discomfort in my life. And I've said this before. I've eaten railroad cars full of chocolate ice cream to kill the pain of eating railroad cars full of chocolate ice cream. And so one day, or not one day, but in a process, food started to lose its ability to comfort me. And all it was doing was making me fatter and fatter and fatter. My thighs rubbed together so that every pair of pants that I had was rubbed out in between the legs from, the, from my legs rubbing together. I found it very difficult to get in and out of a car. I couldn't go to the movies for decades because I couldn't fit in the seat. I couldn't fly on an airplane. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. The swelling in my lower legs was so profuse. At times, I had penny and dime size ulcers in the back of my legs where the pus used to run out. It was not a very happy existence. I was not to go on my first date with a girl until I was 35 years of age. I have known loneliness. I have known depravity from this disease, as few can. But what I can say is at least when I'm here, I'm home with people that understand. Because we speak and understand the language of the heart. 
and I'm among friends, and I'm among those who understand. Bill Wilson said at the end of his life, to those who understand, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not, none is plausible. And thank God I'm here on the line with people who understand. I could never control my bowels. I could never control my urine. I peed in my pants constantly, and this disease made me completely absolutely incontinent. It is an absolute devastation of a disease. The disease took me over at a very early age and killed my spirit and almost killed me. This disease drove me into a point, all abusers isolate you, and this disease isolated me. My mother died when I was 22, my father died when I was 24, and I first came into program because when I was 24 years old, right after my dad died, not long after my dad died, two wonderful friends took the initiative to push their way past the filth of my home where the rent wasn't paid, and I had pizza boxes and cookie wrappers and candy wrappers all over the place, and there were mice running around and cockroaches running around, and the rent wasn't paid, and the place hadn't been cleaned in a long, long time, and they pushed their way past those things to drag me to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous in Skokie, Illinois, on, uh, at the Orchard Mental Health Center. See, God likes to laugh, too. And it was February the 2nd, 1979. And um, through a long period, long process, I got over 700 pounds. Um, things happened. Some were good. Most were not good. But here I am today. I've lost over 500 pounds. I have 22 and a half years of abstinence. You can do the math. Um, I walk three miles a day, six days a week. I work out in a swimming pool in the afternoon at the Jewish Community Center here in Scottsdale. I do that about five days a week. I have a life. Um, I wish it certain things in my life were a little different. Who doesn't? But I have a place where I can go, and I have a program, and I have a group of people on these lines and in my Zoom meetings where I can be home, and I have purpose to my life, and I have become a student of this program. What I'd like to do right now is I'd like to open it up, but before I open it up, I want to make a couple of sort of uh, things known. Let's not do food questions. It's a waste of time. What I eat and what my food plan is, 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 is of no bearing to you, number one. Number two, please, no food questions because I am not a nutritionist, nor do I play one on TV, and for the love of God, no math questions. There's no, if, if you're starting your question with, find the value of X, forget about it. But Leah, let's open it up for questions, and let's do that. No food questions, please, and let's just do the best we can to keep your uh, question in the form of a question. Pretend we're playing Jeopardy, so just make it in the form of a question. Okay, Leah, let's take the first set of names, and let's see how well we can move through. Excellent. Yes, star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Of course, of course, this is questions only, please. Melissa C. Liz S. Liz S. Liz S. Kathy K. 
Thank you, Kathy. <clears throat> Great Judy opportunity K. to post Judy K. To pose questions related to any of the steps. Christine W. Instructions. Is that Christine? W from New Jersey. Okay, thank you. Judith R. And Judith R. Okay, this is our first group of names. Thank you. I have Melissa C., Liz S., Kathy K., Judy K., Christine W., and Judith R. Beginning with Melissa C., good morning to you. Hi, good morning. I hope, I hope you can hear me now. They're blowing the leaves in my backyard. But Perfect, no problem. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you, Harlan. I just... You know, I just adore you. I really um, respect your perspective on things, and your story is just a demonstration of a miracle, right? So I'm curious, what do you do for the person who who hasn't sunk quite as low? You know, I feel like um, sometimes, sometimes our stories, they're dramatic, and um, I'm just wondering if you have experience with people who are like, oh, I'm not as bad as you, but I still need help. And I'm just kind of curious how you um, how you approach I believe, and this is not verifiable by anything in the big book. It's not verifiable by any lecture, uh, lecture, literature, sorry, by any literature that I can put my hands on. This is what I believe. And you are encouraged to ignore this because I'm pre-qualifying that this is my opinion on this disease. This is what I would call a spectrum disorder. It, it affects us in that we all have the physical allergy and we all have the twist of the mind. We have the double whammy, as Lori likes to call it, the physical allergy accompanied by the twist of the mind. But here is what I also believe, and I believe this through observation that it does not affect all of us to the same depth and the same level. We have different degrees. And this is my, uh, this is my opinion based on observation. However, asterisk, we all have a hell that we're going to hit when this disease overtakes us. I don't think a person has to weigh three, four, five hundred pounds, whatever it is. I don't believe that a person has to hit that kind of bottom or going the other way, Melissa. I don't believe that they have to be, you know, 87 pounds if they're on the anorexic restricting side. Everybody has a hell, but here's what we all have in common. The fear of more of the disease has to outweigh the fear of the recovery. In other words, we have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. And if we are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and we have suffered tremendous pain at the hands of this unmerciful disease, we are ready to recover. Whether you're on the first floor, the second floor, the third floor, you have to hit a bottom. And that bottom must include this conclusion of your mind. I can't take this anymore. I'm willing to do whatever they say. And so I don't believe that a person has to hit a certain weight on the scale, 
but they have to come to that conclusion. And my observation is also, if they have not come to that conclusion, that they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they're willing to do whatever it takes, it will show up because they won't show up. It'll show up in that they're going to be very reluctant to do what we what we're doing. So I do not believe that anybody has to weigh a certain amount, but they have to be at the point. And there are people on this line right now, or, you know, you check a Zoom meeting. There are people on this line right now that will never get over a certain weight or under a certain weight, but they're just, they're bereft of anything to do but the steps because they can't take it anymore. And that's where we have to be. That's where we have to be. And what I do for that person is I treat them the same. So to specifically answer that question of what do I do for the person who just hasn't hit that, that visible bottom, I ask them a question. Are you ready? Because if you want what we have, what is it that we have? If you want what we have, we have people on this line right now that are compulsive overeaters that are not eating compulsively, and they are doing so happily. That's what we have. If you're willing to, to, to if, you, if you want what we have, and you are willing to go to any lengths to get there, are you? Then you're ready to take certain steps. So I use that line on page 58. If you want what we have, and you are willing to, are you willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Does that sound like you? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, Semper Fidelis, have a great life because I can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you. And that's what I'd say to them. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to hear your voice this morning. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Harley. Thank yeah. you, Melissa. Okay. Thank you. Liz S., your turn. Hi, Harlan, and thank you so much for the, the gift of your uh, recovery. Uh, the question I have, um, what, can you, what can you say about the person who vacillates between believing that there is a higher power or God in her life and strongly doubting and fearing that there is not? And it's not due to, you know, trying to win the lottery or anything like that, but just a really strong fear and back and forth and back and forth and it's extremely disturbing and unsettling thank you it's a very common question and uh i've done a lot of work on finding a higher power and and i've done a lot of work on on this um you know and, and this is a very common thing a lot of people come into it and by the way thanks for your question liz and, and thanks for your question um, a lot of people come in here with a higher power that I wouldn't want to meet in a in a good neighborhood in in the daytime. I, forget about the dark alley. I wouldn't want to meet their higher power in a great neighborhood at at, at high noon. It, their higher powers are vindictive and mean and and punishing and and maybe that's what someone wants. It's not up to me to decide what someone's higher power must be or should be or can be or is. But what it is, is it's, it's the job sometimes of the sponsor to say to the person, maybe we need to look at what your higher power is or who your higher power is, and let's find something a little more benevolent. But here's more of a bottom line question that I've used, Liz, and that's this. How's your way working for you? 
How's your way working? Is it working for you to do this your way? Because it really doesn't sound to me like that's a viable option at this point. It sounds to me like your way kind of sucks or you wouldn't be here. So let's try this any other way but Harlan's way. And I was told that on a Saturday afternoon in Chicago, somebody said to me, let's try this any other way than Harlan's way. And I'm reminded of something that's very, very important here. Okay? What I'm reminded of is I'm reminded of the, of the thesis line of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the thesis line of the big book in, in alcohol, of, the, of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't talk this morning, is on page 45. And this is the thesis line. It says here, well, that's exactly what this book is about. The next line is the thesis line. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That's the thesis line of this book. The main object of this book is to enable you to find a power capitalized, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's the main object of this book, then it's going to be the main object of, better be, the main object of my life. Now let's take a look at something else, and I'll make this quick so we can move forward here. But what I am going to say to, to you, Liz, and this is something that ties into it, and that is this. Do I believe... Or am I willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? I would ask the person point blank, are you so powerful that you created everything you see around you? The stars, the sun, the children, the puppies, the kitties, the tragedies, whatever that may be. Did you do that? Are you, do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And if you're willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself, you're on your way. That power may change in its definition as mine does. I don't have the same God I had 20 years ago. I don't have the same God I had three years ago, five years ago. Things change. And that's what I would say to the person, Liz. Do you believe... Or are you willing to believe? See, you don't have to believe. You just have to be willing. Do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And if you're willing to believe that, you're on your way. Thanks for the question, Liz. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Liz S. Kathy Kay, your turn. <laughs> thank you, Leah, for all that you do. And Harlan, thank you so much for all the service you do as well. I'm delighted to be here today. I want to know if you have any suggestions for people like me who have been around for a number of years in the program and benefited greatly. I have moments where I think I, I need to to do something different to enliven my program, to to open up new vistas. Um, so I've started doing the 12 steps, going through them all once a year. Is that something that you do, or do you have any other suggestions? for? I go through 
steps four through 12 every single day of my life. We continue improve and practice in 10, 11, and 12. We continue in 10, we improve in 11, and we practice in 12. We are in the, we are in the grips, Kathy, of a progressive disease, and this disease will continue to get worse whether we're in recovery or not. And what happens too much of the time is people that have been around for a very long time, they kind of settle into a routine. And they call these four people or they call these seven people or whatever it is that they do. And they go to these meetings and they do this and they do that. And they wonder why they struggle. Remember that Chapter 3 teaches us that the two properties of the disease are the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. But the characteristics of this disease are threefold. The characteristics of this disease are it is permanent, it is progressive, it is fatal. And what has to happen for me is I have to keep moving so that my recovery is permanent and progressive so that it doesn't get fatal. Now let's just take a look at something here. Let's take a look on page 84. Okay, 84. And on page 84, it's going to say to us in the middle of this paragraph that begins with this thought brings us to step 10. And Kathy, I don't know if you have a book in front of you, but if anybody does, you can turn to page 84. And midway through that paragraph, it says it, meaning the working of this, should continue for our lifetime. And the word continue is going to appear four times in this paragraph. Now let's see what it says. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What step did I use to deal with selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear? Step four. When these crop up, not if, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. Steps six and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately, not in the, not when we get home at night, not early in the morning unless it's when it's occurring. We do it now, step five, and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone, eight and nine. Then we resolutely, resolutely means with purpose, turn our thoughts to someone we can help, step 12. So in step 10, we're going to do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve. In this little half paragraph, we have the working of the steps, not once a year, but many times each day. Because if I'm doing three, four, five, ten steps a day, what's going to eventually happen is I am going to immerse myself in these steps, not eventually, it's going to immediately happen, sorry, I'm going to immerse myself in these steps and growth will always occur. So I don't have to wait to work them once a year. By doing step 10, which is the, when we look at relapse or we look at complacency, what are the two steps most jumping out at us? 2 and 10. The most underutilized are 2 and 10. And when we do the 10th step, we're going to refresh everything several times a day so that the urge to eat Rice Krispie treats is just simply not there. If I have to stand there on unaided willpower 
and not eat ice cream, eventually the ice cream is going to vanquish me. But God is more powerful than ice cream. But I am not. So by bringing God into the equation, my program feels fresh, my program feels green, and my program feels like I'm moving in the right direction. So it's not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And I hope that answers it, Kathy, and uh, I hope that will help. Thanks. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy Kay. The next question comes from Judy Kay. Good morning. This is Judy Kay in, in North Carolina. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And Harlan, thank you for all you do. Uh, you may have answered this question when you answered Melissa and you spoke about the spectrum. And mental health professionals seem to talk about spectrums all the time. But here's my question. It sounds like your friends did an intervention when you, in your isolation and depression, mm-hmm. uh, you were brought down so low and they, they came in and they took you to um, uh, an Overeaters Anonymous meeting in a mental health facility. Um, so here's my question. When is a loving intervention appropriate? How do loving friends know when to bring someone um, before they die? Um, Judy, that's an interesting question that I really don't have an answer to. Everything is, is relative to the person, and things may be different. I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. By dragging me to an OA meeting, which was great. I'm glad they did that. It didn't really hit me that I needed to take action until I came to the conclusion. I'm not saying you should ignore the person. I'm not saying you should ignore them. There are many people, not only that are brand new, there are people that have been in these rooms for years that are circling the drain. I see people in meetings I see people that have been around for years and they're speaking of being abstinent and they're talking about how many years or months that they have that's abstinent and they are considerably larger than they were two years ago, five years ago, seven years ago. And we are hugging them to death. And we have people in the rooms and we have newcomers that are dying of of this disease. But the question is, When do you know when it's time to step in, unless I'm not understanding you? And the answer to your question is, sincerely, Judy, I don't know. I don't know. Um, What you can do is you can do three things for the person who's still suffering. Three things. You can recover. You can recover. You can recover. Show them what this disease, what, not what the disease, show them what this program is doing for you. Tell them about what the disease did to you, but you can show them how the recovery works for you. Be the example that they can follow. And some of them are still going to die. And that's a sad state of affairs. I have buried people along the way, and I miss them terribly. I don't know why. I don't know what the situation is. 
but there but for the grace of God walk I. There but for the grace of God walk I, who should have been dead 40 years ago, and I'm still here. I don't know. It's a mystery, and I don't know how the person is. I can just tell you a quick story. A number of years ago, maybe going back, oh, I was still married. I think we were just in Scottsdale at this time. So I'm going to say 15, 18 years ago, I was doing something in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I was picked up at the airport, as I always am, by someone who I never met before. And he picked me up from the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania airport, and he says, we're going to take a quick trip to a hospital before we go to the retreat center. I said, what's going on? He says, there's a guy that needs to meet you. And I says, does he want to meet me? I mean, I don't want to intrude on somebody. And this guy says, never mind. He's going to meet you. And I thought, oh, brother. I says, you're just going to inflict this visit on this poor soul. I hope he wants to see me. Well, anyway, long story short, we get into this hotel, hospital room. I don't know what's wrong with my brain this morning. We get into this hospital room, and there's a man well over 500 pounds. He is obviously sick. He obviously has very profuse edema in his lower extremities, as I did. I didn't have it then, but I've suffered from it. He is in horrible, horrible shape. He is at least 500 pounds. There's no muscle tone to him at all whatsoever. We come into his room and he was visibly upset. Visibly upset. So here's what he did to get rid of us. He made himself crap in the bed. Knowing that once he crapped in the bed, the nurse would come in to clean it and she would shoo us out of his room. And we left. I know for a fact three months later he was dead. There is no way to tell. But the three things you can do, Judy, are these three things. Recover, recover, and recover. And beyond that, they are in the hands of a loving God, and that God isn't us. And I hope that answers it. Thank you, Judy Kay. Christine W., your turn. Hi, this is Christine W. from New Jersey. Um, I feel so much joy when I hear about a miraculous recovery. We are uh, walking miracles, and, and Harlan, thank you so much. So my question is, for a little background, I was also a, an obese child in 1978, declared obese by the um, pediatrician, uh, suffered for 20 years, um, learning how to diet, learning how to restrict and overexercise. I never got quite that big. Um, my father was Ashkenazi Jew. My mother was Italian. I always say I never had a chance. Um, <laughs> and uh, my father, uh, I got into uh, recovery, into program in, at 30 years old. My father died five years later at, we don't even know what he weighed, um, and uh, the death certificate says 
myocardial infarction, but actually we know what it was. Um, and now my 11-year-old nephew, it's, it's like I'm seeing myself all over again. Um, and I, my, I've been saved by this program. Seven years ago, my husband lost 100 pounds and has kept it off in this program. What would you recommend? What resources are out there? My sister has come to me, her mother, his mother, and said, I, I know, I see what it did for you and, what you're, and your husband. What is there for him? He hasn't come to me, but she has. So what can we offer the parent of the compulsive eating child who is suffering watching the child? And what, when he comes to me, if he comes to me, as I recover, recover, recover myself, what can I offer him? Do you know? Thank yes. you. You can offer her Al-Anon. Get thee to Al-Anon quickly, number one. Number two, you can recover, recover, recover. And, Christine, it's going to take what it's going to take because an 11-year-old is not ready to hear God and inventory and character defects and service to others. Service to others, maybe. They're not ready to hear this. This means nothing to them. This, this has no meaning to an 11-year-old. We have tried as an organization for years. I don't know if they're buried in some warehouse. There is a cartoon book that OA put, published years ago they published a cartoon book of the steps, how to work the steps, and it's got little drawings for children and things like that. We have tried both in Chicago and uh, here in Arizona, but mostly in Chicago at Swedish Covenant Hospital. We used to have young people's meetings, and it was an adjunct failure. Uh, we do. We tried to plant a seed, and these kids would come in, and their moms would sit in the back, or their dads would sit in the back, and we would talk to them. And one, one two of the three of us that did it, two of them were teachers, and and then there was me because I was severely affected by this disease by the time I was your nephew's age. He's 11. By the time I was 11, I had been on diet pills. I had tried every diet in the world. By the time I was 11, I, was, I had stretch marks. By the time I was 11, I was in really bad shape, and I was much fatter than any of the other kids. Christine, the reality is the mother is easy. Get thee to Al-Anon. But the heartbreak that you're watching, only, you can only do three things, recover, recover, and recover. And you can just be the example for this little boy to follow. And you can be that example if you're in recovery yourself. But beyond that, is there a way to accelerate the bottom of an 11-year-old? I don't think so, but what he's going to be in for now is pain beyond imagination because he's 11, and already he's got crushes on girls, he's got feelings that he wants to date or whatever it is, and it's, it, it's probably not good. I shouldn't, I don't know, I'm not there, I don't know, but it's probably not going to be a go. Uh, if he's as, as severely afflicted as you describe, that pain will either make him or break him. The pain of puberty will make him or break him. And uh, hopefully it'll make him. 
Hopefully it'll bring them around a little faster. But, Christine, I wish I had a better answer for you. The only answer I have is recover, recover, recover. And as far as his mom, your sister, Al-Anon, immediately. And I hope that, I hope that helps, but I don't think so. But that's the best I've got. Sorry. Thank you, Christine W. Judith R., are you available to pose a question? Yes, yes I am. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, Harlan. Judith R., recovered in Vermont. Um, um, side question is, do you also recommend Oanon? Um, and the real question I had is, how do you sponsor, do you, um, do you read the big book page by page with your people or have, give them assignments to read and write? Um, I don't give any assignments, no. Like, mm. no. Mm-hmm. I'm, I want to move them through as quickly as I possibly can. I'm sorry, though, I interrupted you. I didn't give you a chance to ask your complete question. I'm sorry. Go on. That's fine. Um, how, how do you do it quickly? And okay. do you do every page together? No, we do not do every page together. What I do now is I cheat. I use my podcasts. I have podcasts uh, within uh, Vision on every chapter from the doctor's opinion all the way. I've done even the chapter, I believe, a Vision for You. And I tell them to go on a Vision and listen to the chapter twice. Follow along in your big book. Call me when you're done. And then we have a conversation about the chapter. In the old days before the podcast, yes, we would go through everything together word by word. But I move them through quickly. We do a chapter a day. I give them three hours for their fourth step. And we move through in seven, eight, nine days tops. We're done with, we're not done, but the step, you're never done. But we move through very quickly. We do a chapter a day. I dedicate my time. They dedicate their time. And we move through fast. But no, I don't read every word with them. I engage them in conversation after they have listened to the podcast twice. And they listen to or they read along with it. And I have to have a very confident understanding that they get the chapter. If I don't, I send them back. If that still doesn't work, now I'll break out the big book and we'll go through it together. Um, But we will make sure they have an understanding of each chapter and then we move to the next chapter. But no, I don't have a bunch of written assignments. That came about uh, Fred Schneider was the founder of the How program, How Honesty, Open Mindedness, and Willingness. And Fred was a school teacher, and he developed that curriculum. He did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum of learning the program, these written assignments. I'm not knocking the How program. There are successful people that I have seen with beautiful abstinence and beautiful tenured abstinence that come out of the How program. They're wonderful. I just move them through very quickly. Schnell, Andale. Uh, so we don't do a lot of that stuff. We just don't. And there's no uh, point of reference in the big book for written assignments. There's no, except for step four, step eight, uh, there's just no, uh, uh, you know, there's no point of reference that you need written assignments. But to each their own. And, you know, if how works for a person or whatever works for a person, hey, far be it from me to be critical. You know what they say, what gets you drunk would keep me sober. So I hope that answers it, Judith, and that's how I do it. Thank you, Judith R. Let's take some more names. 
Yes, let's take some more names for additional questions. So one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Ken W H. The letter H. Robin C. tell you who I have thus far. I have Ken WH, Loretta H, Roz G, Fran K, Russ M, Christina J, Robin P, somebody else K that I'm missing. Debbie K. Um, okay, Debbie K. All right, let's begin this group with Ken WH, please. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Harlan, for your uh, tremendous service to us. Um, the book tells us that alcoholism is a subtle foe. Um, overeating, uh, compulsive overeating is a subtle foe. What are some of the ways that this disease has spoken to you subtly in the past and uh, you know, work to lure you down uh, away from the road to recovery? And what is your... Um, experience of some others who have shared some of the subtle folk, um, techniques for trying to get us back. Okay. Thanks. Good question, Ken. Thanks. How does this disease speak to me subtly? It doesn't necessarily jump up and say, eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. It doesn't do that most of the time. What it will do as a subtle foe is it will allow me, invite me to engage in self-pity. It will allow me and invite me and it will entice me to engage in character assassination, negativity. It will invite me, it will entice me to engage in jealousy. And what is the problem with all these things? Why can't I engage in jealousy and, and all these things, gossiping and stealing or whatever it is? Because I am a compulsive overeater. I have a brain that is wired differently than a normal person. In a normal person, they can be angry and they will never think to go eat candy as the result of this toxicity of these emotions. I'm not conscious of this. I'm not eating Oreo cookies and shoving them in my mouth and thinking, yeah, I'm really jealous of Joe. I'm really angry at Cindy. I'm really this. I'm really that. No, I don't think like that. I think I'm hungry. I want a candy bar. What leads to that thought? Food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. Let's take a look at the doctor's opinion 
And let's take a look at this very, very unbelievable paragraph. Now, remember that if the book of Alcoholics Anonymous was a building, this would be its cornerstone. Let's take a look at what it says at the bottom of page XXVIII, and let's let the big book answer your question. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Does that mean I think today's Wednesday? No. What it means is I will think that I can eat Oreo cookies with safety. That I'm going to eat Oreo cookies and I'm just going to have two or three. Maybe two or three bags, maybe two or three cases, but not two or three. The only time I ever ate one cookie was when it was the last one I could get my hands on. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Now, let's take a look at what that means. When I'm not eating, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. Throw in jealous, scared, angry. Throw in all kinds of emotions. And food was never the problem. Food was the solution to the problem. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what's the problem? When I was one day old... I was probably scared, or I was angry, or I was whatever. I was upset. And food calmed me down effectively like nothing else could. My mother petting my head, my dad kissing me, did not calm me down as effectively as eating sugar, as eating flour, fried foods, fatty foods. Those foods became my salvation from the storm. So the disease does not have to jump up and say, eat an Oreo cookie. No. The disease jumps up and says, that guy's got more money than you. The disease says, you should be retired. You shouldn't still be working. You're 67. It's hopeless. Life sucks. This world is a veil of tears. It's a terrible life. God sucks. The program sucks. F it all. Go eat. That's how subtle this disease is, but I've taken it out into a progression. So if food is not the problem, if food is the solution to the problem, and the problem is the buildup of these human emotions of which I am totally powerless over. I lack power over these emotions, and they will prey upon me. And these emotions will drive me into the food very, very effectively. But the subtlety comes not from the thought that says, let's eat French fries. That's the end result the first thing that has to enter into my mind is negativity, comparison, jealousy, rage, fear, doubt. That's where the disease takes its taproot. That's why the steps beyond the first half of step one do not deal with food. They deal 
with the mind, the soul, the, the, the spirit. Anybody that tells you that abstinence is the most important thing in their life without exception is different from me. Abstinence is vital. Do not call me later and say, you said abstinence, we don't have to be abstinent. I never said anything of the kind. Abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. The working of the steps is because I have a disease that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. It does not say in the book, we have a disease that abstinence will conquer. Abstinence is a prerequisite. Abstinence is vital. Without abstinence, there's nothing. But abstinence alone does not treat my disease. If it did, then diet paying ways would have worked for me. If it did, losing weight would cure me or treat me. But here's a beautiful illustration that has nothing to do with me. A man of 30 was doing some spree drinking. <clears throat> Excuse me. A man of 30 was doing some spree drinking. He remained bone dry for 25 years. He starts drinking and he's dead within four. Did his 25 years of bone dry sobriety save him? You bet it did not. I have a disease that only a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience will conquer. I've never had a spiritual experience. A spiritual experience, just so that you don't have to ask, a spiritual experience is sudden and profound. A spiritual awakening is slow, and it develops over time. And rather than ask me, if you, you, know, if you don't want to ask, if you want to ask me, you can ask me, but that's fine. There's a better explanation of this than anything I can give you, and it's in Appendix Number 2 at the back of the big book, and Appendix 2 begins on page 567. In the fourth edition, it's on page 567, unless I'm wrong. I don't think I am wrong. I think it is 567. And it's on page 567, and it will explain the difference between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience. I know that's kind of a long answer to your question, but Ken, your question is profound, and it's a good question. And that's why I spent some time with it, because that subtle foe, does not say eat donuts. The subtle foe says life sucks. The subtle foe says if it wasn't so hot, your life would be good. If it wasn't so cold, your life would be good. If you had that girl, if you had that money, if you had that house, if you had that car, if you had that life, everything would be great. And those are lies. Those are the sirens calling the sailors to dash their ship on the rocks. And that's where that disease lives, is in the subtle thinking, the subtle idea that somehow I got screwed. And that's why I have to do a gratitude list. That's why I have to thank God every day for what I have and thank God for what I don't have. Okay, I hope that answers it, Ken, but that was an excellent question. Thank you very much for asking it. Thank you, Ken WH. Next up, Loretta H. Loretta. 
Good morning, Leah, and good morning, Harlan. And Leah, thank you so much for your service. And you are an example. One of my favorite lines in the big book is, when he found God, he found himself. And that's what I always hear from your story and your recovery. My question is about amends. Um, I have been in the program a long time, and when I first came in, uh, I lived in New York, and a lot of people put their name on their amends list. Since I've been going through the text and uh, the vision format of doing the steps, I've done the steps many times, I have been told that the amends come from the change in my behavior, and that is where the amends uh, actually where I get to release all the wrongs I've done in helping others and doing this program um, in a spiritual, you know, practicing the principles in all my affairs. Can you just um, tell me, do you put yourself on the amends list? And no, I do for, not. No. Thank you. Okay. And it, so my um, observation is just to recover, recover, recover. I, the amends I make to myself every day um, is to work this program. And each one of us is, is leaving behind a legacy of either a cautionary tale or an example of the, of the recovery. I want to leave behind an example of what this can do for a person. Um, I do not put myself on the amends list at all. I make amends to myself every day by working the program. And uh, by working the program, I further immerse myself in an understanding. And by living it, 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 it helps me in every way possible. I have a wonderful, wonderful circle of friends. There's not a city that I go to um, where I don't know somebody, where, where people are not glad to see me, where, where I come into a convention in Newark, which hopefully, God, if you're listening, I know you are, let us all be together happy and healthy in Newark, uh, you know, when, whenever we can arrange that next vision convention, uh, or, or the birthday, the OA birthday in Los Angeles. I know this year it's going to be on Zoom, and, um, Registration is open, by the way, for the birthday, so I suggest you jump on that. But soon we'll be together, and the hugging and the, and the, the real joy in, in, in seeing each other and embracing each other is beyond description. But that's how I make amends to myself. This is an immersion program, and by that what I mean is you immerse yourself in this program, and that's how you learn it. You don't learn this program by sitting and doing assignments. You learn this program by living it. I'm not knocking the assignments. If, if that's what works for you, that's fantastic. I'm not knocking it. But what I'm saying is I learn more. Maybe that's what I should have said. I learn it best by living the program. And uh, I am healing in areas that I didn't even know were broken. I didn't even know were broken. And that's the beauty of this program is that as the disease is progressive, the recovery gets to be progressive too, provided that I continue to do it. And I am recovering in areas uh, that, as I say, I didn't even know were broken. Was there another part of your question, Loretta, besides amends to yourself? Because I was having a lot of trouble hearing you. Was there another part to it that I missed? No, you 
Thank you, and I'm sorry my phone was a little wacky. Oh. No, it was perfect. That's okay. Thank you, Loretta. I hope that helps. But no, I do not put myself on the amends list. I make amends to myself by living the program. Thanks. Thanks, Loretta. Rise G, your turn. Uh, Roz, where are you? Where's Roz? Calling all Roz's, calling all Roz's. Hmm. Should we come back? Maybe I need an error. Maybe I need an error. Okay. Francis K. So one can you, Francis K. Ooh, I'm not hearing anything here, but static. Correct. I'm sorry, this is Franny K. in Virginia. Hi, Franny. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Okay, and thank you uh, for your service, uh, Harlan and Leah. And Harlan, I have had the pleasure of meeting you twice. Uh, I would, uh, I'm, I'm in need of direction. Um, I just spent uh, 30 days in a treatment center in Florida and coming home on Thursday night, I lost my abstinence um, thinking that I had it. Penny, excuse me, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Do you happen to be on speakerphone? Because it's very difficult to hear you. Yes, I'll get off the speaker. Yes. I'm getting like every other word. Get off the speaker. Is that better? Oh, 100 times. Okay, I apologize. I uh, have been in OA 20 years. I've been listening to Vision consistently since um, December of 2018 after my second trip to a 30-day treatment center. I just came home on Thursday night, and uh, I lost my abstinence at the airport after 30 days of uh, beautiful um, uh, physical recovery and a lot of uh, baggage uh, released. Um I have been abstinent since yesterday and today so far, so good. Um, I am in need of direction. Okay. I hear this too often. I hear this too often. And where this, a lot of this comes from is we have a lot of trouble letting go of the diet mentality. Mm-hmm. The diet mentality is pervasive. I know people that have been in this program. There, there, there are people in this program that I came into this program and saw at my early, early, early meetings. And, and, and it, it doesn't change over the decades. This is unfortunately what happens. We see the steps on the wall. We quote-unquote, work the steps, but we still have a hard time divorcing from the diet mentality that says, I'm going to throw my willpower into this equation, and I'm going to fight the food. What I had to do in my life when I told you that I came in in 1979 and I also told you I have 22 and a half years of abstinence. I'm going to have hopefully, hopefully in December of 23. Well, you can do the math because I sure can't. But you can do the math that says there's a gap there where I had a seven-year period and then I 
blew it, and, and so on, and, and, and a five. We have to divorce from that diet mentality as best we can. And we have to ask God to please help us set aside in our minds everything we think we know, everything we think we know about this program. I would suggest a couple of things. Get a new sponsor. Work the steps as if you've never seen them before. Work them out of the big book. And every single time you think about food, that you want to eat it, you've got to be willing to make that phone call. You've got to be willing to pick up the phone instead of the food. And at first, you are going to be dieting. At first, you are. There's no question about it. The first phases of this are very, very difficult. First of all, withdrawal from food is nauseating and painful. I walked around with dry heaves for days. And I walked around in horrible pain because food, to a great degree, killed the pain of fear, of jealousy, of anger, of my own doubt. Food works. It works like a charm. But for it doesn't work for more than about 9, 10 seconds. Then I'm right back in the same fear, and now I've got a belly full of food. And the most pathetic state that I can be in is, if I had to define pathetic, I've got a head full of the big book and a stomach full of food. So things have got to change. If nothing changes, Franny, nothing changes. And a new set of ideas, a new set of attitudes, and new behaviors can now take place. Dr. Jung told Roland that he needed he needed to change. And let's take a look in the chapter We Agnostics. Let's take a look at what happens here at the meeting between <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think it's in We Agnostics. Hang on here. I think it's in more about alcoholism. Nope. Nope, it is in We Agnostics. I'm just not finding it right away. But anyway, Dr. Jung told Roland that he had to change. And the change had to come from the spiritual experience. And he uses different words to say change. Attitudes, ideas, and emotions change. And this is what has to happen. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And the, the change has to emanate from my action, not from my willpower, not from what I think, but it has to change from my action. And that's the key to the whole thing. And that's, that's my answer to your question. It's got to come from your action. And I'm, I'm, I hope I answered it, Franny, but if nothing changes, nothing changes. And without change, it'll be the same thing over and over again. And eventually, life will pass us by. So I wish you all the luck in the world. If any of us can be of help, call us before you pick up the phone. Uh, before you pick up the food, sorry. Pick up the phone before you pick up the food. And I hope that, that does it, Franny. And I wish you continued success. And, and I'm here for you. Thank you, Franny.
Christina J. So I want to unmute. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Hi, Harlan. Christina J. State of Washington. Every time I hear you talk and share, I cry. Just uh, the message comes through, my friend, the message of pain and struggle and suffering. And I don't want to go back there. Thank God today I don't have to. Um, so what kind of relationship did you have with God before recovery? And how did you come to get close to the higher power you have found now? What does that look and feel like today? And how does that help you stay abstinent um, physically and emotionally? Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Christina. That's a very good question. And um, when I was a little boy and I went to synagogue, whether I was going to Hebrew school or whether I was going for services, I thought God was this mystical guy in the sky with a white beard, and he seemed to favor others but not me. They had backyards and houses, and we lived in a rented apartment. They had young, virile, American, wealthy parents, and I had Max in Virginia. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, and I got Max in Virginia. Very, very different. On the day that I was born, the probably, probably, probably the first thing I ever heard was them screaming and yelling at each other. My mother was profoundly mentally ill. She had three personalities, a screaming, raving lunatic, a two-year-old, and a pretty-together person. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born, and he was an immigrant. And if it wasn't for the fact that he could collect his Social Security when he was 65, we would have probably lived under a bridge. He had nothing. He was not a businessman. He didn't make a very good living at all. And I was very angry at God and very upset with God because I prayed to God a thousand times to make me thin, and I kept getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And finally, I turned my back on God, or so I thought, and I said to him, F you, God, I want nothing to do with you. You suck. You suck. My friends have trust funds and businesses that they can take over, and I'm lost here in the woods. How come I don't have brothers and sisters? How come I don't have aunts and uncles and cousins? How come everybody gets a cousin and an aunt and an uncle and a niece and a nephew? And I have none of those things. What's the deal on that, God? What's the deal on that? And how come we just seem to flounder in life and other people seem so successful? And the more I judged my insides with other people's outsides, the worse and more antagonistic my relationship with God became. And one day... One very magical Saturday afternoon, a man who I am indebted to, he said to me very loudly and very, very abruptly, how's your way working for you? And we redefined my idea of a higher power, and then we work at it. I work at it. Remember that in the second step, it does not say believe that a power greater than yourself could restore me to abstinence. It says came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Came to believe indicates that this is going to be a lifetime process, that I'm going to have to work at this. Now, Christina, you have relationships in your life. 
I don't know if you're married or not or whatever. I don't know. But I know you have relationships in your life. You have friends. Maybe you have relatives. Maybe you have coworkers. I don't know. But here's what I do know. In every one of those relationships that you have, Christina, you have to work at it. When they have a birthday or they have a special occasion or they have a death in their family, you have to acknowledge them in some way. You have to keep in touch with them. You have to work at those relationships or through attrition, those relationships will die. Okay? God is the same way. If I don't work at that relationship, I don't have the same power in my life that I have when I work at it. I have to pray. I have to express gratitude. I have to do my morning meditation, seek his will. I have to do my nighttime meditation. And there's one other thing I need to do above everything else. I have to remember what it says on page 77. It says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. When people call me, I return their calls. I don't always want to. I'm watching a game. I'm watching the Munsters here. I'm watching the Adams family, whatever I'm watching, young Sheldon. I don't want to be bothered. I just want to watch some TV. And some putz is calling me from God knows where. And if I can't jump on the phone right then, I call that person back. When somebody emails me and says, I'm having this or whatever, I email them back. I go to meetings. I serve as best I can. I make sure that the program and the faith that I exhibit translates into action. I could sit, there's a synagogue two blocks from my house. I could walk there, no problem. There's a, not huge, but it's big enough. I could sit in that synagogue until the walls cave in, and I may not get any closer to God. But if I take action, service, treating his children as if I love them as much as he does, doing what I need to do to be of maximum service, I feel him closer to me. And when I walk to God, he runs to me. When I walk to God, he runs to me. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Sanity is much more open-ended with a higher ceiling than either abstinence or sobriety. But the most important thing for me to look at is came to believe, which means I have to work at it. If I'm not feeling God in my life right now, it's not him that's moved. It's me, because every time I work toward that relationship, he is there, and he carries me above, he carries me above the muck of this disease, the filth of this disease. This disease is filth, and he carries me above it, and I hope that answers it, Christina, because that's, that's the best answer I can possibly give anyone. I hope that answered it. Yeah, I wanted to say that I've read that service is the greatest form of praise to God, so you're right, it feels right on target. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thanks, Christina J. Robin, your turn. Thanks so much. Thank you, Harlan, and thank you so much, Leia. God bless you guys. I'm so grateful for you and for my recovery today. I'm from Costa Rica, and my question to you, Harlan, is um, I'm currently working with somebody who is working through the steps and slips. Um, I just wondered what you say specifically to that person, and I've been studying up on uh, some podcasts from, from the founders of AA, and they didn't fire people. They just, if, as long as they said they were willing, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Thank you. Well, let's go to page 96 of the big book. But before we go to page 96 of the big book, how many times has this person slipped? Robin, how many times have they slipped? Sorry, I didn't make that. Okay, I understand. Um, a couple of times. A couple of times. All right. Um, they may need to hear a different voice, but let's let's let the voice of the big book be the loudest because that's really the authority. It says at the top of page 96, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. If this person is is slipping once or twice, what I, let, I try to go back and say, what, what happened here? What happened? And what I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm hearing the answer is, what can we do differently? But if a person is unwilling to take certain action, and when I say certain action, I mean completely give up allergy-producing food. Are you willing to give up sugar, sweeteners? Are you willing to give up flour? Now, that may not be your thing. You may not be allergic to those things. This is not sugar anonymous. I hear people all the time, I'm a sugar addict, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and I'm a, I, a night binger. And all. Well, if you say you're a compulsive overeater, you, that says it all. You said it all. What, what, can, what can we do differently? But if the real situation is the person isn't ready, and the person isn't willing to make a call when they feel themselves leaning in toward the food, then there's not much I can do. So page 96 tells me what I need to do. If they've, if they've slipped twice, I would say to myself, and I would say it to them too, if this happens again, I really think you need to hear a different voice. What's going on between the two of us is not working for you. And it's, it's not working for me. I need to spend time with someone that I can connect with. Does that make sense? I hope it does because that's the answer. And it's at the top of page 96. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, uh, uh, Robin. Thanks for your question. Leah? Thank you, Robin. Yes. Okay. Let's hear a question from Debbie Kay. This Debbie. is our final question. Oh, okay. Hi, Debbie Kay from Central Pennsylvania. I'm pretty new to the program, having been worked in another fellowship and realizing that this is my first true addiction. 
and um, I'm really struggling. You know, I had a sponsor, terrific sponsor. We're going through the steps. And um, when I'm, uh, the question is this. You talked um, about, you know, the malady of the mind um, and that's the association. And do you have any suggestions for how to reframe your thoughts or pausing when the food starts to call to you? What I'm finding, the reason I'm asking the question is I'm finding that it's like an instantaneous thing. And my mom plays tricks with me and says, oh, I can eat normally. I, I, you know, I'm going to take one bite, etc." Thanks. Debbie, um, when that thought starts to hit, you have to pick up the phone, not the food. You have to learn an alternative response or you're going to continue to pick up the food and very little, if anything, will, be, will, will, will change. You have to take different action. And you have to learn to take this action immediately when that thought hits you. Because if you do what you did, you'll get what you got. And so the short answer is you have to change your actions and change through your actions your behaviors and your attitudes will change. But you have to start by picking up the phone instead of the food. You, you cannot do anything without thinking about it first. I cannot say the words to you that I'm saying right now without thinking about them first. And so when that thought hits that you're going to have some cake, when that thought hits that you're going to have some french fries, that's the time to pick up the phone and you better say to somebody, I want to eat french fries, I want to eat cake. And if they don't answer, call someone else. You have to put as much effort into the recovery as you did into the disease. You have to work as hard at your recovery as you did at getting the food, eating the food, hiding it from others, lying about what you've done, suffering the consequences. You have to put as much into the recovery as you do into the disease. And that's my answer is you're going to have to pick up the phone instead of the food, and you're going to have to work through the steps. And that's the answer. I wish I had a shortcut for you, but I don't. Thanks for the question, though. Thank you, Debbie, for your question. That was the final question. Helen, did you want to add a comment or two before I read from page 164? All right. Uh, I just want to say how honored and thrilled I am to have have been able to do this special edition this morning. I want to thank you, Leah, for inviting me to, to do it. Um, and I just want to say to everybody that the, the holidays are upon us, and oftentimes meetings go down, and the population of vision can go down too, and the population of meetings can dwindle as people use these dates on a calendar to excuse utter nonsense. Be the example of the recovery. Be that beacon of hope. And if you are, then you're serving God at a very pure level. Be the beacon of hope that says that if you can recover through these days of holidays, then others can as well. And remember, too, that there are people out there suffering that need you. Leave a piece of your recovery, and it will be something that will be a gift to God that will be permanent. Be 
that gift to God Almighty with your recovery. Be that beacon. When people come into the meetings, let them find your face, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's in person, whether it's on the phone here in Vision. Be that beacon of recovery. If it's going to be, it starts with me. And I wish every one of you a wonderful holiday season. And I wish every one of you the best in the upcoming times. And may we all be together again soon in Newark or wherever we're going to be at the OA birthday in Los Angeles or the Vision Conventions in Newark. Let's hope that we can be together in person safely without fear of, of disease as soon as God can make that possible. And I hope to see you all very, very soon. I hope God will cross our paths. Thanks. Thank you for that beautiful message. And thank you for your service. Always so loving and generous, Helen. Greatly appreciated. Today's share ID eighteen thousand and seven. That's one eight zero zero seven. And we're gonna close right now from page one sixty four. It's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation that you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't thought. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass through you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Keep freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.